We're going to continue tonight in Galatians uh, chapter 3, so if you're there tonight. You know, we've been exploring that epistle of Galatians, uh, I guess now for the last uh, several months, I guess it is, and we've addressed the, really the primary reason for the apostle having to write this letter to begin with. And, and I think about, as you're, as you're turning to Galatians 3, I'll just, I'll just read Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Once again, the reason that this letter had to be written to begin with. He said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him who called you into this gospel of grace and to another gospel, which in fact is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, Paul speaking of himself and other apostles, he said, or even an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you except what we preached unto you, let him be accursed. And we said before, now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Folks, that's strong language, but that's the primary reason that that letter was written. And that's the primary reason that we're studying this letter, really, in regards to just how relevant it is to the time that we're living. And so whenever I read these verses, or just simply just meditate upon the Word of God, especially stuff like this, I mean, you know, this isn't that feel-good stuff. You know what I mean? You don't read that and say, oh, praise God, I'm, I'm, I'm confounded that you're so... Uh, departed, you know, from the gospel, or, or you've departed from the faith and given heed to seducing spirit. You know, that's not that feel-good type of stuff. And so, when I read those things from the perspective of a minister of the gospel, and maybe you do too, regardless if it's an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, or just somebody that's teaching in the body of Christ and has a, a definite concern for those, you know, you see those, and, and you can probably think of situations like those ones where you wish that you didn't have to have. That conversation. You ever had to do that? Ever had to write a letter to somebody or address something? Or maybe, you know, in our contemporary time with social media, you saw something pop up and, and you're like, man, I wish I could just say, praise the Lord, God bless you, have a great day. But there's something that compels you to, to say something, to, to stand, to, to, to sound a, a warning. You know, I think about Jude chapter, uh, uh, it's only one chapter, obviously, but verses three through four, and, and how really he found himself in a similar situation. And again, this is very familiar to you. And he says, dear friends, he said, I've been eagerly, and I love this because I can so relate to it. He said, man, I've been so eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we all share. Man, I, Andrew, I wanted to get with you, man, and us just bump fists and just talk about how great things are and all that stuff. I mean, that's kind of what it was like. Man, I just, man, I so wanted this not to have to be one of those times. And he said, but now, he said, I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once and for all to his holy people. And he said, I have to say this. He said, I have to say this because there's ungodly people that have wormed their way into your churches. And look what they say. You hear this all the time. Say that God's grace, marvelous grace, allows us to live immoral lives, continue to walk in sin. He said, the condemnation of such people. Of what people? People that say that grace provides you an open door to sin, that it's a pathway to unrighteousness rather than the power to walk in victory. He said, such people, the condemnation of such people was recorded a long ago, for they have denied our only master Lord, Jesus Christ. Folks, listen, when we say things like that, when we say, listen, grace affords us the opportunity to sin, what have we done? We've denied Jesus Christ. And you hate to think of it in terms like that because it's so prevalent. And so, but we're in much the same situation in our day and age, and uh, just as Paul and Jude, Jude were in the early church, where another gospel has been introduced and where the grace of God has somehow become a license to sin rather than just simply the power to overcome. And if you think about it, and you see these things, and again, we're in the information age, so 
things that might have taken, you know, years to, to reach your collective thought just take seconds anymore. You think about repentance has been reduced to an emotional and, and usually a short-lived reaction to some stimulating message. Well, I didn't repent. Man, somebody preached a message at a conference or, or at a service or I went to a, a, a worship outing or something and, man, I went up and, 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 and I was weeping and I was crying. And a couple weeks later, they're back in, in the same thing. That's what repentance has been reduced to. Or uh, a revival. You think about, you talk about revival. It's either a guest speaker that brings some canned message that he's preached all over the country to somebody else and he says, God's giving me a first word for this congregation. He sings a few songs with some backing tracks. And you know, that's what's revival. Or you have some folks that, you know, let's, let's get you stirred up and yell, fire, 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 bam, bam, shaka, buka, buka, or whatever they're doing. And if we get people laughing, we get people rolling, we get people doing something physical, then we call that revival. We don't care what they do afterwards. But man, I tell you what, wasn't it a tremendous show? But folks, we see how repentance and revival, two things that, that this generation is desperate for, have been reduced to, to, to parlor tricks. Uh, to, to put it blunt, bluntly. And so Paul was attempting to really right the ship that was being steered into really a, the proverbial iceberg. And so this ship was about to go down. This church in Galatia, much like I believe the, 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 the church of, of our nation and beyond because we've exported this flavor of, of Christianity. And some of you that travel uh, around, you see that same thing being reproduced in places that a generation ago it really wasn't. People used to talk about, well, the, the church in Africa is different or the church in China is different. Well, I know people that are, are frequently in those environments. They'll tell you that it's rapidly becoming influenced by westernized uh, Christianity. That slippery slope of greasy grace has dropped him into that same cesspool that we're desperately trying to get the church to crawl out of. And so he was trying to rock this ship just as... As, as, as Jude was, and hopefully maybe just a little bit more we can do tonight. So last week, if you'll remember, we focused on Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14. And I'll just read that to you quickly. He said, though Christ Jesus, he said, through Christ Jesus, he said, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing that he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. And you remember last week I gave you seven uh, basic blessings. I'll just give you the names of those. We're not going to detail it. It'd be also there on our, our Facebook page. And Caleb will probably uh, have that converted over. He may have, he's already converted over to MP3, so you can hear the audio message of that. If you need that, see him after service and tell you how to find it. And you see, the seventh of basic blessings that we shared last Wednesday was A, that he told Abraham, he changed your perspective uh, uh, that was provided through a change of priorities. He called him out from those familiar places. The second thing was the ability to populate eternity with the benefit of the kingdom. The third thing was the ability to be received by him as a blessing. Not just to receive a blessing, but to be received by him as a living sacrifice. The fourth thing was the place where he will know and call us by name. Uh, the fifth thing was the honor of extending his blessing into the lives of other people. Sixthly, the ability to become a vehicle wherein the favor of the Lord will come into other people's lives. And finally, the place wherein all will be blessed through seeing the testimony of our changed lives. And once again, I just gave you seven. If you want to go back and look at those deeper, you can look at that, uh, that video or go to that MP3 file on our, uh, our podcast. So this week, we're going to look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 18 that I'm going to read, but I probably won't get out of, of 15. Highly unlikely. Uh, as a matter of fact, it won't happen. Um, but verse... <laughs> 15 says, I'm going to read it from a couple of translations, beginning with uh, the King James Version. Here's what it says, very familiar. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And he said, Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man can disannul it or add thereunto. I'm going to read that in another translation, the NLT, because I read that to you and ask you what that means. 
there's probably very few people that would get very much out of that. You just pass over and say, well, let me give you, get something that makes a little bit more sense. And, and we'll go deep into that because it makes a whole, whole lot of sense when we get into it. But this is from the NLT. He said, dear brothers and sisters, he said, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, he said, so it is in this case. Makes sense, right? And he says in verse 16, he said, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And he says, that notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants or many other ways. Rather, it says to his child singular. And that, of course, means Christ. That is what I'm trying to say, that the agreement God has made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise, the one that was given 430 years uh, earlier. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. So once again, look at verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be out of a man's be it be a man's covenant, yet it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereof. The, the very first thing that I want us to look at tonight is, is, is something that, uh, a, a kind of an interesting contrast that takes place in this conversation, this letter that's probably easily overlooked, especially with the pace that we're taking through this. Now, if I ask you to, to close your eyes or close your Bible and, and, and tell me how that first, that third chapter opened up, how he addressed them, without looking down, some of you probably wouldn't remember. I said, how did he address that? Because we know what he's saying here. He's saying brethren. Okay. But look at how he opened it up before we got to this verse. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? Who has bewitched you, as the King James says? For the meaning of Christ's death was made as clear to you as it had been a picture of his death on the cross. In other words, it should be just as real to you as the nose is on your face. Some of us, more noses on our faces than others. And so he called them foolish. He implied that they had a spell cast on them. He goes on to suggest that they departed from the faith in verse, uh, verse 2. He asked them if they're now dependent upon the flesh for the righteousness. And he asked if everything they had previously done was all in vain. Now, think about the way he addressed them to open it up. I mean, he was laying the axe to the root, so to speak. He was exposing the motives of their heart. He was coming at them very strong. He was in their face. He was rolling them up. Whatever vernacular that you want to use, it applied. And so now, having blown them completely out of the water, he changes his tone completely and he addresses them using the term brethren. Okay? Now, we can say brethren. Or we, you know, we can, we can ghetto-fied or say brow or whatever we want to. But folks, listen. They weren't in the ghetto, and he wasn't talking to people and using uh, terminology and slang. There, there was something significant, not just about those first two verses, but when he jumps down here and he begins to address them. And so he, he says, yes, I'm calling you foolish. Yes, you're acting foolish. Yes, I'm saying that you've been bewitched. Yes, I'm saying that you've departed from the faith to a certain extent. Yes, I'm saying that you're now, what you're now doing is carnal. Yes, I'm saying that you're now reneging on everything that costs you dearly to receive. But still, even at this point in the equation, I'm still going to address you as my brethren. Folks, that's, that's valuable. That's very important to you and I in this day and age. And there's a tremendous lesson just to be learned from that one word. And here we are. Uh, Roy and I talk about just certain places you've studied. It's just like, man, you can't get past one word. Well, well, for me, that's a big word. And had those first two verses not been in there, it wouldn't have meant so much. But the very fact that he addressed them in that way, then all of a sudden, it, it, it seemed like he kind of pivoted, as they say in, in politics anymore. And, and he began to address them in another way. He said, uh, there's a lesson. He said, here's the word that he used. And he used that word, eldophoi, 
which comes from Eldonfos, and he's acknowledged him specifically as a fellow Christian and as a brother in Christ. Okay? He's using the word that to us, brother, bro, it can mean just anything. It can mean a total stranger, just somebody we've been introduced to. But by the very fact that Paul the Apostle, who had called them bewitched, who had says that, 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 listen, you're deceived, that you're departing from the faith, all of those things, he still uses a word that brings them in league with himself. Listen, I'm calling you a fellow Christian. And what has given me the, 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 the platform to speak into your life like I am is the very fact that you are. Think about what he wrote to the church at Corinth in the end of that fifth chapter and beginning in that sixth. He said, listen, there's no need for, for you to judge those that are outside the church, but it is your re distinct responsibility to judge those that are inside the church. Listen, those who are outside the church have already been condemned because light has come into the world and they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They're already under condemnation. No need to condemn them. But if there's people in the church that are sinning, it is your responsibility to judge them. And so what he does, he pivots and says, listen, the reason I'm addressing you so harshly, so firm, is the very fact of who you are. Now, folks, I've been on the streets and, and been talking to somebody, witnessing to somebody in a conversation. And, you know, we do it all the time. And, and you know, you'll talk to somebody that claims to, uh, you know, to be a Christian. And you know quick into the conversation that they don't even know what that means. Right? You've been there? That they're Christian and you get down to it. They're, they're Christian because mama was a Christian or daddy was a Catholic or something like that. And you understand that nothing that you're saying to them makes any sense to them because they've never heard it. Anybody had that conversation? That they're convinced that they're a Christian and they, uh, they like baseball and they eat apple pie and they've saluted a few times. Okay? So they're a Christian. But you know good and well that there's nothing that you can bring them to as a standard or as a principle to say, okay, you claim to be a Christian, but what about this? Because you realize that there's nothing on the plate. But what about those conversations and you're talking to somebody and as you're sharing, they're finishing your passage that you're quoting to them. You've been there? And they begin to talk about maybe later in the conversation of where they used to be and what they knew. And, and, and God forbid that they tell me that they came out of a, a spirit field or a, or a Pentecostal background because, man, I just have to go all the way Pentecostal going on. You know? And so it changes things. And I'll say, listen, yeah. You didn't come from a Catholic background. You, you weren't in a situation where, where you were deprived of the truth. You weren't just in some Wygate ecumenical situation where you just showed up. But you're telling me that you came to a place and you were taught salvation by grace through faith. You were taught to live holy. You were taught to live righteous. And now you're telling me that have, having received the knowledge of the truth, having been enlightened, having been entasted of that heavenly gift, that now you're trying to go back and act like that didn't happen? Well, the tone and the tenor of my conversation is immediately going to change. I was saying, you've got to be kidding me. There's 50,000 people walking down this street that any one of them would be so thankful to have had the experience and the relationship and the opportunity that you've had. But you're like the dog that's returning to its own vomit in the sow, having been washed, returning to the wallowing in the mouth. You've tasted, you've seen that God is good. Now you've rejected that great, great grace and mercy. You're like it says in Hebrews 3, even the angels, having received a just recompense of reward that is sin. How shall we escape from being neglected so great of a salvation? And so like I said, man, I get very forceful in that. Paul the Apostle pretty much did the exact same thing. But then listen. I'm calling you out on these things because I consider you a Christian. I consider you someone that has had a legitimate experience with Christ Jesus, and that makes your actions inexcusable. But having said all that, look at the, the lesson 
in doing that that he demonstrated that even in the midst of gross, gross error and deception, is that what it was? Folks, this wasn't some small potato situation where they were arguing over how much water to, to sprinkle over somebody or to dunk them in. I mean, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about we're, we're battling over is it the name of Jesus or the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And if, it, if it's that mantra that saves, and what's, we're not talking about this. We're talking about either salvation, redemption, justification through faith in the finished work of the cross of Calvary or through the law or something that we might be able to adhere to. We're talking about totally two different pathways to salvation that he's addressing. And so these are people that were in the midst of gross error, gross deception. Those people that he addressed in those verses that we opened up with, let them be accursed, okay? But even in that, look what he had. He had a measure of grace and mercy at work that was designed to draw even that errant person back to the truth of God's word. And that God is not in such a hurry to cut people off and to confiscate their salvation without allowing them space to repent. That's what he did. Even these people that are that are in danger of causing the grace of God to be of no effect, that are accursed and foolish and all these things, Paul the Apostle in addressing them as brethren, he wasn't saying, okay, you found up. I'm, I'm cutting you off. Maybe he expressed such a mercy. I think about it over one time I, I counted them up. In the Old Testament before the cross, over 50 times, over 50 times before Jesus came down in the form of sinful flesh, over 50 times before he was battered, bruised, and crucified, over 50 times before he rose from the dead, over 50 times before that lamb was actually slain upon the cross of Calvary, it says God is good and his mercy endures forever. Over 50 times. Fifty times when people were, were, were still living under the law, where, where if, if, if they did half of the things that we've done in, in our life, if we'd done one of those things, we'd have been stoned. I mean, we're talking about that, but God is good, and His mercy endures forever. He's bringing them back to this place, and these folks had likely been walking in, in deception probably for time-wise, from the time that he, he planted that church in Galatia until this letter was, was finally written probably between two and five years estimated by some scholars. So they had a period of time of, of, of being bewitched, being foolish, uh, being uh, apostate, so to speak, in so many areas. And, and think about 2 Peter 3, 9. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning what? His promise. Okay? Remember verse 14 concerning the blessings of Abraham and the promise through faith in the Spirit? Okay? And so it's the same promise. God's only got one promise, right? And so God's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, to brethren. And so he's not so willing to pull back the promise like we're willing to pull back the promise, not willing that any should, what? Perish, but that all should come back to the thing that's been so misused. Repentance. That word perish means literally to be cut off, to ultimately perish, to be delivered ultimately to the eternal misery of hell. So he's not so willing, he's not so quick to pull it back, but he is extending mercy. Paul the Apostle was giving that verbiage to say, listen, God is extending mercy. There's a tremendous promise for you, but I don't want to pull the rug out from under you, even though I'm chastening you, even though I'm, I'm, bringing, I'm, I'm bringing discipline upon your life. 
And so they were going down a road that would ultimately, it would, it would ultimately lead to a forfeiture of their salvation. But even then, mercy had been extended along that road to give space for repentance so that they could turn around. They were on that path, that path that would lead to destruction, but he was still walking alongside them. And as I was writing this thing, you know what I was thinking of? Man, you know, sometimes we're on Bourbon Street and you say, hey, hey, man, what's, what's God been speaking to you? Hey, are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? And they kind of ignore you and you just start walking with them. Hey, listen, t- tell me what's God been doing? Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a, okay. Well, come on, you've done that before. You know what I'm saying? That's what he was doing. Paul the Apostle said, listen, even though you're trying to get away with me, what am I, I'm, I'm doing, I'm following you down the street. I'm hounding you. I'm in your ear. I'm in your grill. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be dissuaded by the glance or the look or the, or the snide remark that you're making. He's, he's following down the street. Are you sure? You don't look too good. If you really think you're a Christian, stop for just a second and have a conversation with me. I want to tell you something. Listen, then why are you here? Then what brought you to this place? The word says have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose it. Are you here preaching? Are you here participating? Don't you know that when you become the friend of the world, that you become the enemy of God? You're doing whatever you can. You're getting all the word into that environment that you can't hope it, that something you say is going to pierce their heart, is activated by the Holy Spirit, it's going to stop them in their tracks. That's what Paul the Apostle was doing right here. He was speaking to them, imploring them through the mercy of God that was being extended, saying, listen, you're my brother. If, if I didn't have that relationship with you, I would probably just let you go to hell in a handbasket. But there's a camaraderie. There's a relationship. There's a commitment that was built upon a covenant that's not so flimsy as the deception that somebody brought into this place in your life. Listen, I want to fight for you. I want to fight the deception. I want to fight the deceitfulness. I want to fight your rebellion. I want to, I want to fight with you. I want, to, I want to be like those two and a half tribes that got their inheritance on the east side of, 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 of Jordan. But listen, you haven't possessed your promise, and God is not slack concerning your promise. So I'm going to fight for you until you get your promise too. Folks, the body of Christ has got to raise up with that same type of mentality. Not so quick to wield the sword, but to wield the word of righteousness into a person's life that's going to bring them that place. And that's what he did. That's, 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 that's where I was reading. Convicted. Folks, listen, you know, think about a personal testimony for myself concerning the mercy of God. And, and many of you have heard me mention this before. But years and years ago, I was praying in my office. And uh, when we lived in Texas, I was pastoring there. And the Lord spoke to me and asked me a simple question that really changed my perspective on so many things. And he said, would you be willing on the day of judgment to receive only as much mercy from me that you've given to other people? Man, it was like a bolt out of heaven. That's exactly what he said to me. Would you be willing to receive only as much mercy from me on the day of judgment as you've received from other people? Billy, remember me? He's probably sharing it right after that happened. And I've shared it on pulpits dozens and dozens of times because of the impact that it made upon my life. And he just took me to Matthew 5, 7. You, you know it. It's right there in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what about the unmerciful? They won't obtain mercy. Folks, you'll hear TV preachers and people like Mike Murdoch get on te- television. They'll talk about giving. It shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will men give unto you. You know, they'll say that. But folks, it's not talking about money. It's talking about mercy. That's what he's saying. So you give mercy, and mercy will be given to you. Press down, 
shaking together, running over. Men are going to give you mercy. Folks, I don't know about you, but I need a lot more mercy from God on that day than I've given to other people. I do. I, I admit that. I need more mercy than I readily give. And he says, so blessed are the elemones. Blessed are the merciful, or listen to what that means. Those acting consistently with the revelation of God's covenant promise. That's specifically what blessed are the eleonis are. Blessed are those who act consistently with the revelation of God's covenant promise. Folks, that's what Paul the Apostle was doing. Even though he opened that third chapter, calling them foolish Galatians, revealing their sin, doing all those things, but he brought it back on down the line in that same conversation. And he said, but listen, he said, I want to act and I want to live consistently with the covenant promise that I've been talking to you about. And I love how he did that prior to that. You know, obviously he gave the, talked about those seven uh, distinctive blessings of Abraham. Listen, that's part of your promise. And folks, listen, I'm calling you out because you have a promise. I'm, I'm in, 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 imploring you towards righteousness because you have a promise, because there's value in what God has done for you. And so I'm, I'm bringing something to Eleonis. I'm bringing something consistent with how our Savior was. It was so consistent in, in, in his Christophanies, in his Theophanies in the Old Testament, he was showing mercy. It was consistent because even though his people under the Old Covenant transgressed him many times, he showed them mercy. I'm showing you something that is consistent, that predates the law, that predates anything that was merited because of what Christ Jesus did concerning that covenant promise. So Paul the Apostle's correction to them or our correction that has got to be brought many times to other believers, has always got to be done in a way where we're acting consistent with the revelation of God's covenant promise for them and for ourselves. Folks, you find yourself sometimes, especially with, with brethren, we'll just use that, that same word that he used, you can find yourself acting in regards to brothers and sisters in Christ inconsistent with God's covenant promise. I'll see my hand up. Amen. I'm glad that me, Roy, and Caleb will be flogged after the service. Amen. <laughs> Folks, it's, it's, it's an easy trap to fall into. It is because we think sometimes that maybe we have an inside track on something that they don't. Folks, listen, in our flesh, regardless of what that flesh looks like, dwells no good thing. There's not a single one of us, in, bar none, that are inerrant. There's not a single one of us that are above the grace and the mercy in the necessity of, of God's salvation. There's, there's not a single one of us that aren't consistently have to work out our salvation with, 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 with fear and truth. Not, not a single one of us. Comb through every one of us. Let us all do a self-evaluation. And, and let's see where the rubber meets the road. Okay? So he was telling them right there, walk in consistency the revelation of God's covenant promise. And, and I love the very fact of the matter is that doing so is not defined as some greasy grace, folks. That's not what it is. You know, the pendulum often was swinging in one direction. People said, well, what, what does that mean? Folks, that doesn't mean that at all. It means there's a consistency. You know, look at the word he used. A consistency with the revelation of God's covenant promise. Yeah, there's a, there's a correction, but there's also a consolation. There's a consoling of those things. He comforts the oppressed, but he also chastens those that he loves. So back to verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, or 
Here's an example from everyday life. And this, folks, that's just Paul being Paul. If you, if you study, especially the writings of Paul, go, go through Romans, go through the Corinthian letters, some of these, some of these writings of Paul. This is especially the Corinthian letter. And I'll give you an example here in a second. And I'll give you one out of Romans as well. But this is Paul being Paul in the sense that he so oftentimes utilized illustrations from human relationships as an analogy. You know, and, and he did it, I think, to help other people understand the, the message that he was attempting to convey. Let me give you an example from Romans. Romans 7, 1 through 3. I kind of picked this one because he uses that same word. He said, you not know, brothers. He said, I'm speaking to those who know the law, and the law has authority over someone as long as that person's alive. For example, by the law, a, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband's still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, folks, listen. He wasn't specifically, if you know the Roman letter, he wasn't specifically talking about marriage, but he was using specifics about marriage to relate to the truth that he was giving. He wasn't specifically talking about marriage, but he was using specifics about marriage to convey the overall truth that he was getting to about walking in righteousness. And so Paul being Paul again in Galatians, when he begins to talk about a contractual agreement, he wasn't talking about contracts. He was using the specifics of those things to drive home something. So it's very similar. Here's what he says. Though it be a man's covenant, yet it's confirmed no one can disannul or add thereof, or just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. And so just in like manner, as he spoke to us in Romans 7, using obviously marriage as an analogy, what he's doing now, he's using the example of a legal contract to, to, as an example of the stipulations that are provided in a binding agreement, otherwise known as a covenant, that God made with Abraham to explain the deceptive and violating nature that the Judaizers were now attempting to introduce when they attempted to bring the law back into that uh, redemptive process of uh, justification by faith. And so just as you use marriage in Romans chapter 7, he's using a contract to say, listen, there are certain stipulations that cannot be avoided. There are certain things about a marriage. Listen, you can't say one day. I can't say, you know what? Oh, Melanie, you know what, man? We've been married nearly 31 years now. And you know what, honey? I'm tired of it. I think I'm just going to get rid of you and go find me some, a, 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 a newer model of you. You know what? What am I going to be? Specifically, the Bible will call me an adulterer. And listen, I can say, oh, Jesus, forgive me uh, for, for getting this, this younger example of that, somebody that, that maybe is a little bit more vibrant, somebody that's, that's, that's way younger. And so God, forgive me. Oh, I'm so glad God forgave me so I can just hang out with this sweet little girl some more. No, I'm in violation of covenant. Right. Period. That's the violation. So Paul the Apostle was saying, listen, you can say whatever you want to, but you're not going to bring this other aspect into this covenant. Under any circumstance, it's going to be okay. Just like you're not going to bring a third partner into a marriage and somehow make room for that third partner, you're not going to bring a third aspect into the relationship with Christ wherein we got a redemption and think that that's going to be okay. I'm not going to bring law into this relationship and somehow find a place for law no more than I'm going to bring a mistress into my marriage and somehow have a place for her. And so he's driving that point so home to them. And so he makes it plain in, in, in that it's common knowledge among men that when two people enter into a contractual agreement with one another, that it cannot be modified, it cannot be changed, it cannot be abdicated in any way, otherwise or otherwise alters, except by the mutual consent of both parties to that contract. Let me give you an example. Say, for instance, Caleb says, man, I'm going to buy me a new car. 
Amen. Or an old car. I want to buy me a car. And so what I've done is, is I went down to whatever the, the lot is down here. And, and I saw a car. And we negotiated the price. And, and that car is $20,000. And so, hey, we're going to check on some financing. Yeah, we're going to check on that financing. And so, hey, we got it back for you with that down payment that you want to pay. $20,000 is what you're going to pay for that car. And we're going to set that thing up on 60 payments at $500 a month at 6% interest. You sign the agreement, they sign the agreement, you're thinking, man, I'm glad I'm really enjoying this car, and you're, you're driving it for about a year, and all of a sudden you get a letter in the mail. It's the finance company. They say, well, we understand you've really loved that car, you really enjoy it, you thought to yourself, man, I couldn't live without this car. And so as a result of that, what we're going to do is we're going to raise your payment up to $1,000 a month, since you've enjoyed it so much, and we're going to raise it up, and we're going to double your, your interest rate to 12%, and you know what? We want you to really enjoy doing business. We're going to stretch that from 60 months to, to 72 months. What are you going to say? No, well, I didn't agree to that. You're going to say, when I entered into that contract with that agreement, we agreed on $20,000. We agreed on $500 a month payments for 60 months at 6% interest. And that's what we agreed on, and that's all I'm going to do. And if they do anything else, they're in violation or they are in breach of contract. And so what Paul the Apostle was doing is the exact same thing. He said, listen, just as it would be unlawful for a bank to change uh, horses in the middle of the river on Caleb in regards to a financial uh, and, and, and binding contractual agreement, that God's not going to change horses. He's not going to change in the middle of the covenant that he made with us and get some more stipulations. They're not going to say, listen, I know you didn't say this, but listen, what we also want you to do, you've got to wash the car every Friday. You know, you've got to do that. And all we want you to use is, is, is premium unleaded gas. You're going to say to yourself, listen, no more than I'm going to pay double payment. Listen, I'll wash my car when I want to. I, I may not want to wash it on Friday. I may want to use regular unleaded. Folks, listen, that's exactly what the Judaizers were coming to do. God had made a contractual agreement. He had entered into a covenant with, 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 with Abraham for us. Then all of a sudden, somebody showed up on the scenes and said, listen, you've got to start washing your car on Fridays. And they say, listen, I know that's not too bad. Listen, listen, well, does it seem like such a bad thing? You need to keep your car clean anyway. Is it such a bad thing that you need to put a premium on leaded? You're going to do a longer life. Is it such a bad thing? And can you imagine the conversation that was happening after Paul the Apostle left? When he's preaching this glorious message of, of, of salvation by, by grace through faith and the justification of God, and these people are experiencing genuine, bona fide revival, something's happening, and all of a sudden you have these people that are very learned that, that show up, these, these Judaizers, that are now speaking into a people that, that really don't have that depth of, of, of understanding of the law. And they say, listen, man, Paul, Paul's an awesome guy. Man, he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. You know that? Well, so are we. You know, Paul was that awesome guy. So, well, we're going to come and, hey, everything Paul said was fantastic. But listen, we're going to add a few stipulations to it. Well, he never did bring them up. And so, are you saying that even though Abraham was circumcised, are you, are you saying it's a bad thing? Oh, no, he never said it's a bad thing. So, why don't you just do it? Is it that bad of a thing to, to, to have to follow after these stipulations? Folks, can't, can't you hear kind of that conversation that would bring them in? No, shouldn't you adhere to certain principles? Aren't those good? Aren't are those bad? You know, make this just cover up your head, lady. You know what? Just it'd be an easy thing to do. You, you see how easy that would slip in. It's just it's just modest. Well, then all of a sudden those things become a part of it, rather than just something that you're doing based upon a moral decision in a relationship with God. Those things begin to take the place. 
and they served to try to disannul or to invalidate the covenant. So he applied that same reasoning to the covenant that God made with Abraham while contending that the law of Moses cannot modify, can't replace, or set aside the covenant agreement since it was given 400 years after the fact. That they tried to send you a new payment book a year after the fact. They wanted to lay stipulations a, a 400 years after the fact. And so the promise of Abraham and the law of Moses then have had been given two cooperative yet completely distinctive reasons for existence. Folks, listen, the, the law wasn't given to, to somehow disannul or to compete with the covenant God made with Abraham, period. Nor was the covenant God made with Abraham something to, to, to disannul or to make of none effect or to somehow uh, subjugate the, 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 the law. Most, neither one of those things were, 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 were meant to be that way. Why? Because those things were given for two different reasons. So the law could not, as Paul gives through this analogy or, or of this contractual agreement, be something that was meant to disannul, revoke, or otherwise amend the original agreement that God had made with Abraham. Now, I want to tell you what I mean by those things being cooperative, yet not the same. The promise of Abraham was given for this reason. Write this down. It was given to secure the inheritance or the favor of the Lord. That's what that covenant was given for. It was given to secure the inheritance or the favor of the Lord. Folks, listen, this is what salvation does. It brings us into right standing with God. When man failed, man was no longer in right standing with God. So he made a covenant with Abraham through faith that brought about an inheritance. We can become heirs together with Christ Jesus. That was the, the foundational element that was necessary in that agreement that God would make with him. So then the same thing would not be expected to be secured through the observance of the law. And so he says, listen, I'm making this agreement with you to secure an inheritance or the favor of the law. And so if he used that, the same thing couldn't be said. Listen, you've got to do these things now through the law to get that. Why? Because you could not have two contrasting things that were meant to obtain the same result. He's not saying I made a promise with Abraham to bring salvation. Then 400 years later, after that covenant has been established and ratified through the transformation of people's lives, all of a sudden, I'm going to come up with something else that's going to bring salvation. Folks, listen, God's not a house divided against himself. He's not double-minded. As a matter of fact, what has he said about double-minded people? They're unstable in all their ways. And so God will not, has not, and never will provide two ways of saving mankind. He's revealed the manner in which man could be saved through Abraham, that being faith, and not through the observance of the law that would come around 400 years later. So God doesn't have two plans of salvation. So here's what Paul's point was. It was to drive home the fact that the promise of Abraham was by no means made void once the law was given, that salvation, redemption, justification all stood on their own merits, irrespective of the demands and the designs that were associated with the law. Listen, it stands all by itself. And so the Jews, or specifically those Judaizers, what they were trying to imply was that the law given hundreds of years later after the Abrahamic covenant was given, somehow could supersede or take precedent, precedent over that covenant. Even though it came hundreds of years later, they were trying to convince this people, listen, I know what he said. I know the way that it was back then. But let me tell you that now the law is given. Oh, it's, it's something better. Folks, listen, the covenant that we have in the blood is a new and a living way. 
That's the way that we have by him. And so in order to go back to something else, we would literally, at our point in time, we would have to backslide into something that is powerless to save. Why? Because it was never meant to save. And so when Paul says, though it be but a man's covenant, he wasn't referring to the covenant God made with Abraham. That's not what he was talking about there. He was once again referring to that analogy or the contractual agreement made by two persons in everyday life. And that word covenant, here's what it literally means. It means a place between two. A place between two. It refers to two people placing something between them that obligates them to one another. They put something between them that obligated them to one another. And as I said that, the visual picture I got from this, and, and, and Melanie uh, uh, will think about this too as I say this. You know, after uh, Joshua had called me and asked for Kayla's hand in marriage, they were, they were somewhere ministering, and uh, they were walking, and because they weren't going to hold hands, they weren't going to become that familiar, they were walking, but both, both of them had the edge of a Bible. And so they were holding the Bible between them together as they walked. And somebody had snapped the picture from behind. Folks, that was the covenant that bound them together. The covenant that bound them together was not a phone call that he made to me, or it wasn't the exchange of rings. It was something that they put between them, which was a covenant relationship built upon the premise of the Word of God. And folks, that's what he's talking about. When he talked, uh, covenant means, listen, there's something between you that obligates you to one another. Folks, you know what marriage is built upon? That covenant relationship. It's built upon something that obligates us to one another. You'll notice that at many weddings, in a traditional wedding, they say, listen, uh, uh, through sickness and in health, uh, through richer for poor, listen, we're entering into a covenant, regardless of the circumstance, good times or bad, whatever it is, that there's something that holds us together. We're obligated to one another. It's not my feelings towards you. It's not my attraction towards you. It's none of those other things. Yeah, those things drew us together, but those things can't bind us together because what happens when maybe I don't look as good as I used to or maybe I'm not the same size as I was at one point. Is there going to be anything that binds us together? Folks, that's the covenant that he was talking about. Listen, there's a covenant between people that can't be disannulled because something else comes along. Somebody younger, somebody richer, somebody more successful, somebody that, 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 that has a sweeter demeanor, sends me more flowers or whatever else. There's nothing that can stand in the way of that. And that's what the Judaizers tried to do. God had made an agreement. He had ratified that through the promise that he had made with Abraham. Now something was coming to circumvent that relationship. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him righteous because 400 years later he would give the law. Doesn't say that, does it? It says Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him righteous because of his faith. Folks, listen, I got news for you. My faith, my, my righteousness today is not become because of my church attendance. My righteousness today is not because I've spent years standing under a big cross on Bourbon Street preaching the gospel. That's not my right. My righteousness is not because I join in in a praise and worship service or even stand up here and preach or teach. My righteousness is going to be solely and totally derived by faith. None of those other things are ever going to give me more righteousness or less righteousness. Period. Because the second that I think they do, it becomes self-righteousness. Folks, my righteousness, he's perfected forever. He's made righteous forever. Those that are sanctified. Father, sanctify them by all that neat stuff that they do. No, Father, sanctify them by thy word because thy 
Word is truth. And God watches over his word to perform it. He has ratified his word, that covenant promise that he has came upon us. And there's something between us that obligates us to one another. So that was the faith and revelation that God had given to Abraham in the Old Testament. It was later, obviously, revealed by, uh, by Paul the Apostle. Galatians 2.21, For if keeping the law could make us right with God, there was no need for Christ to die. Romans 4.14, For those who depend upon the law are... are uh, uh, for if those who depend upon the law are heirs, then faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. How did the Hebrew Israelites get around that? Well, they just chuck it out of there. How did the, the, the Hebrew Roots Movement people get around that? Well, they just disavow it somehow. Paul was a nutcase. Why? Because if faith comes by any of those things, then the promise that God made 400 years before all of those things they try to go back to becomes worthless. And so the purpose of the covenant with Abraham was to secure the inheritance or the favor of God, but the purpose of the law was to establish a people to communicate that covenant. Do I need to say that again? The purpose of the covenant with Abraham was to secure the inheritance or the favor of God. The purpose of the law was to establish a people that could communicate that covenant to other people. Folks, that was why he set them apart. They had to have faith just like everyone else. But he set them apart, made them a peculiar people so they could stand out, so they could be different. So everything about them, their culture, their dietary needs, their, their, their appearance, everything about them would be different. Why? So they could introduce other people to that covenant. And he did so by the applying of the law. All of those things, according to the pattern, right to the tabernacle, all through the dress of the high priest, all to the, the actions and the way that the people dealt with every one of life's most simplest of circumstances, was strictly to draw people to them so they could point them to the covenant by faith. But somewhere along the line and leading up, even to when Jesus Christ came, and they missed the Messiah. Because somewhere along the line, they thought it was about them and what they did rather than their father Abraham. And he had faith according to promise because he simply believed God. Folks, listen, we don't do what we do. We don't go preach so we can be ramble Christians. We don't do that. We don't get our cool black shirts on and stuff and go out there and do those things so people can say, well, ramble. We, we just do that to bring people to covenant. We do that to be noticed. That's why we, that's why we don't go out there and just fan out and say, okay, every man for himself. That's why we go out there as a unit. That's, that's, that's why we have a, a, a particular plan. That's why we do things the way that we do. We don't just try to, to blend in and be on our own. We do that to be provocative, to provoke people to take notice so we can share the message of salvation. Not to say if you do this or you join our club or our group, you're going to be saved. But we do that to give us a platform and a voice together to be able to speak into their lives. Folks, that's what the Jews were called to. Just like the Great Commission has been given to the church, but the church has largely avoided it as well. Why? Because what happened? We talked about this back several months ago about the, the Acts 15 meeting, and they were, were debating on, on, on what these Gentiles should do, and they created the first denominationalism too fast. Folks, what's it done since then? Multiple, multiple, hundreds, if not thousands, of independent denominations, most of which have left that sole purpose that they were called to. 
So your salvation comes because you go to my church. You don't sing songs, or you get the right amount of water, or you use the right hocus pocus, or whatever it may be. So salvation comes by those things. Folks, salvation comes by faith in the finished work of the cross of Calvary. Regardless of your t-shirt, regardless of your persuasion, regardless of your denomination, that's where it comes from. And the day that it doesn't, then you've made the grace of God and the cross of Christ and none effect in your own life. That's what it was for. Romans eleven fourteen says he extended that covenant that the Jews rejected in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy. We received it as Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Not a jealousy of the relationship, but a jealousy of the responsibility. You hear me? Not a, not a jealousy of the relationship, because that relationship was to whosoever would, but to provoke them to a jealousy of the responsibility. Folks, listen, you know, it may be not no surprise to you, but I've had people that have hated me over the years because of what I do. Period. I'm, and I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers that have despised me for what I do. Well, why is that? Well, because it provokes them to jealousy. Not because I can have a better relationship with the Lord through what I do. But because I'm taking responsibility to do what we've all been called to do. And so the very fact that I'm just obedient in that one little assignment that God has given me, well, what happens? It provokes them to jealousy. I can't believe he does that. I don't do that because what does that make me have to realize? I have to lie and say, well, I'm glad he's called to that. Folks, we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. And you know what God uses us to when we walk in obedience to that? To provoke those to jealousy, to bring them back into covenant. I told you I wouldn't get past that verse. Father, we just thank you for tonight, Lord God. And Father, we want to see, Lord God, we want that to be real in our life. We don't want to add mixture, Lord God, to that covenant that we have with you, Lord God, through anything else. And Father, we want to walk, Lord God, even as Paul walked, that, that same audacity towards mercy, Lord God. That same, Lord God, in, in one sense, Lord God, seeing the, the volatility of decisions. But, Lord God, at the same time, Lord God, reaching out in, uh, in, in mercy to those, Lord God, that are also in covenant with you, Lord God, because you don't want any to perish, Lord God, but all to come to repentance. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.